up, everyone? Ryan Kramer here with Crossover Commerce. Thanks for coming to episode 133 of Crossover Commerce, presented by Ping Pong Payments. You've made it. You've made the destination. We're excited you're here. Thanks for joining, whether this is your first episode or your 133rd. I know there's a lot of groupies out there. I'm just going to give a shout out to you. So thank you for tuning in. This is my corner of the internet where I bring the best and brightest in the Amazon and e-commerce space to my corner of the internet where again, we're going to be talking about anything from logistics to supply chain to uh, optimization of your product listings to even acquiring businesses and brands on Amazon. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Yesterday, if you tuned in, we actually had um, awesome brands on from the UK and they were actually able to talk on and believe it or not, how the schedule worked out. We have another quote unquote aggregator in the space doing some really exciting things. One of the very few businesses that have now raised over $100 million in equity, as well as in debt equity, just to, to acquire brands uh, for their businesses. And we're, I'm really excited about that because they have walked the walk and talked the talk. We're talking, of course, about D1 Brands and Yaz and his team over there. The exciting thing about that is uh, we have him live. We have him actually, he was, believe it or not, before he can... Uh, he can protect himself. He was locked out of his office, which we're why we were running a little bit late today, but I appreciate everyone tuning in today. Um, but of course, Ping Pong uh, Crossover Commerce is presented by Ping Pong Payments. Let's get into that real quick. Ping Pong Payments has actually helped over 1 million customers worldwide and now has produced over $90 billion to date in cross-border payments. That means if you're paying your VA, your uh, supplier and manufacturer, which is super important to date, you can pay them in local currency with a very low cost ability to do so instead of doing through international wires or through other third-party platforms. Go ahead and check out Ping Pong Payments in the show notes below. You can actually sign up for a free account today and start using that uh, as soon as, you know, 24 hours and once you're approved. So go ahead and check that out or mention Crossover Commerce when you talk to somebody here at Ping Pong Payments. That being said, the show is not just about me. It's about my guests who are awesome to come on today and their busy schedule. And this person is no exception to to the role. His name is Yaz. Yaz actually helped co-found D1 Brands. He and his team, actually, he went to the University of Massachusetts, as well as a bunch of other prestigious things. He's actually sold on Amazon with him and his team and have leading uh, brands in the Amazon space. And that's any, anything from baby to home goods to all sorts of categories. Let's bring him on the show. Welcome Yaz Malas of D1 Brands. Yaz, thanks for hopping on Crossover Commerce. How are you doing today? Good, good. Really excited to be here. Thanks. For apart from me. yeah, apart from getting locked out of your own office, which is a terrible prank to pull on the CEO of the company, right? Turns out office security works both ways. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have your key, you can get into your office. No, that's uh, no problem whatsoever. So yeah, you, your offices are where at because you're in New York, correct? Or yeah, New Jersey? We're, we're in New York. Uh, our okay. office, our primary office, is based in Boston. Um, we have a few oh, warehouses. Nice sprinkled uh, around New York and New Jersey as well. Um, but most of the team works out of Brooklyn. Nice. Okay. So you're, are you originally from Brooklyn? What's kind of that background for you as a person? Um, yeah. Did you go, grow up in Boston or? I grew up in, um, I grew up in New Jersey. So I was always okay. staring across the river at New York um, and imagining the great possibilities uh, for me. <laughs> I, you know, the way the world works, I ended up going to school in Boston and staying in Boston for a few years before, yeah, before starting D1 and then coming to coming to New York. Okay, so so is this the first business venture that you actually did uh, coming out of college, or how, how does that work? What's that background before you got into D1? Yeah, so um, 
I spent about, um, I, after I graduated college, I went to work um, at a large investment management firm where my job was basically to, to look at companies and talk to CEOs and understand their businesses and their business models and then make a decision if we wanted to invest in them or not. I did that for about six years. I got to meet thousands of some of the best CEOs in the country and CFOs and COOs. Um, and eventually I, I got really tired of sitting across the table um, from somebody who I was really inspired by that had built something incredible. And I started to say to myself, you know, hey, maybe I should I should try to do that. Um, and that's and, and but going back a little bit further, I mean, growing up, my inspiration to become an entrepreneur this is kind of what that, this conversation is going into. Um, my inspiration to become an entrepreneur actually started a lot earlier. Uh, my dad was a first generation immigrant. Um, came to the kind of classic story, came to the U.S. with a couple of dollars in his pocket, you know, lived in a eight person apartment in New York City um, and eventually, you know, built, started bus- building his own businesses, started selling chicken on the street. And then he eventually did a textile factory um, and a run of other startups. And like our dinner table conversations as kids was always about this business or that business or this business model or that business model. Um, and so I was always inspired by entrepreneurship and the idea of building something myself for a very long time. Um, I got the courage to do it after seeing so many successful people do it, um, people that I know. And, um, and then fortuitously, um, you know, I came across the Amazon opportunity, uh, probably like a lot of people do, you know, an Instagram ad, Facebook ad and make $50,000 a month and change your life. You uh, bought that course, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah, he suckered me and the clickbait was real. Um, <laughs> um, and... And then um, I, I realized that, you know, there was and, I, and then I started doing more work uh, uh, in, on the Amazon opportunity. I started to go to meetups, started to meet really successful Amazon sellers. And then I started to really think about how can I combine um, what I've been doing on the investment side and what looks like an incredible entrepreneurial opportunity to go build brands. Um, and then I met my co-founder um, and he had been selling on Amazon for eight years. He started in twenty in late twenty twelve. Um, he was one of the one of the first kind of like in the, in the FBA wave. Uh, and he told me about kind of his success and the build the business that he had built. Um, scaled four brands, launched over three hundred products, very high hit rates on those product launches. He can scale his team to call almost a dozen people. Um, and you know he was like you you can he's like there's a really interesting opportunity to start acquiring amazon brands um he had initially tested the hypothesis a couple of times but he realized he was missing a core skill set um and when we met it was kind of like destiny when his was telling us that we should do this um and that's really how we've been able to take d1 from you know a 10-person team to start um, a year and a half two years ago um with just four brands um that we had built essentially um, and to today, where we have about 20 brands, 76 employees, we've raised $120 million of capital. Um, and, um, yeah, and we're just really excited about the opportunity in front of us. That's amazing. I, I don't think there's any other businesses out there that actually have started the uh, aggregator, the acquirers base or business built around their own central brands because either they they've sold them off and they're like, Hey, I can do that. I, I think that there's an opportunity there. You actually at the core of it. And I didn't know this before you were, you were talking about this, at the core of it, you actually built your business model around what already success you've seen on Amazon. Is that the best and fair assumption that, that we can say what D1 brands is? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, what really, what really makes us special and the reason we had the, the confidence to go after this market is, is because we, we believe, we still believe, and, and at the time we thought we had the best team. And the best team to us was people that just understood and could empathize with Amazon sellers, people that have been who have Amazon uh, operational knowledge and deep experience in it. Those are the people that should be the ones that give sellers an opportunity to exit because they're going to be the most empathetic buyers, right? Like, you know, I, I started, got into the Amazon space two years ago, but my, my co-founders been doing it for a long time. I've heard all the war stories um, and I felt a couple of the war stories ourselves. I mean, when we first got started, you know, one of our primary accounts got suspended for 21 days. Um, like I, we were all running around with our heads on fire um, and, you know, it was the worst feeling in the world. We hated, you know, we were, you know, we uh, used a lot of bad words when describing Amazon, but um, we developed a strategy, we implemented it, we got things figured out. Um, but I know how that feels. And I know how to solve that problem. And you know, now we get product suspensions. You know, every seller has product suspensions on a regular cadence. We have a system and SOPs and POAs built to handle those issues. Uh, but that's just one example of like Amazon is. You know, the rules. There's like written rules and written rules on Amazon. And there's a lot of ways to lose. And the things are constantly changing. The ways you can lose can constantly change. The most important thing is experience. If you've dealt right. with it, you know how to deal with it going forward. Um, and, and that's really what we bring to the table, um, when we're, when we're talking to sellers, because the last thing you want to do is you're in the middle of diligence, um, you're under contract, you're really excited about closing and then something goes wrong. There's a product suspension or account suspension and the buyer gets spooked. Um, we don't run away from the fire. We kind of run towards it because we know how to, we know how to, we know how to, uh, extinguish it. Interesting. So you're, so because of that, you, you, you would rather, be able to help coach them through like, Hey, it's okay. Like, you know, that this stuff happens. We had this, uh, the unique conversation yesterday of the shelf life of a product, right. Or just accounts in general, like what, what's actually the longevity of an account nowadays. Um, there's only been so long that FBA has been in fulfilled by Amazon for, for those who don't or are listening to, uh, know what FBA stands for. Um, the possibility of a third party selling online. I think the max is maybe, eight years, maybe even longer than that to date that they've been able to do that. So with that being said, an account being suspended along the way, there, there is a possibility of that. It's probably pretty decent uh, possibility, but for whatever reason, um, going against TOS or just even like on purpose or accidental. Um, so you're saying that if you encounter something like that as a, as a buyer of brands, is that, is that an instant turnoff or is that something you just are very, you know, you empathize with in that regards. And you're like, Hey, it's no big deal. What's the reason you kind of do your due diligence. Is that, is that a fair assessment? That's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are, there are product, there are account suspensions that happen before we, you know, but they happened in the past. Like we'll start talking to somebody who was interested in selling their business. And then we start to learn about the history of their account. Okay. It was suspended. It was, it was for this reason, it was shut down for this reason. Um, and we dig into it and we make a determination if, if that's a, a, an ongoing risk, um, if they dealt with the issue, um, or if that completely changes the way we want, we, we, um, the way we think about this account. For the most part, there aren't a lot of, there's only a few accounts suspension reasons that would really turn us off. Um, and a lot of them you can fix. Some of them you can't, um, you know, heavy review manipulation, um, 
where a big base of your reviews are, you know, have been influenced by certain t- certain things that are currently not TOS compliant um, would be concerning. But there are a lot of reasons why you might get suspended um, for the right reasons or the wrong reasons that don't necessarily fall into that bucket. So nine times out of 10, I would say um, an account suspension, account suspension is not a deal killer for us. And we can understand the issues. But for other people, an account suspension is one big, broad brush, right? just bad. Um, but for us, we can take a more nuanced view and understand the issue. Interesting. So what, what would be the one, what's a major thing that you look for? And that's a major turn up besides like, obviously either sales threshold, it has to meet a certain requirement for you and the team to invest in that. What, what's the major turnoffs in that regard? So if I'm a seller, I say, and I approach you guys and I say, listen, you know, this is what happened. And they're like, you're looking into the nitty gritty and the dirty books of everything. What are those red flags that a seller, that you as a buyer and that sellers will do in order for you to say, not even going to happen. It's like case closed. Thanks for shopping with us and coming by. Yeah. um, Like um, if there's not a lot of things, I'll be perfectly clear. Like I think a lot of things are solvable and a lot of things like we we can figure out on on structuring and mitigate those risks. But if I had to, Think of like one or two things that would be deal killers, quote unquote. Probably shouldn't mm-hmm. be saying what it's called. Um, but well, I, mean, I was going to say, like, is there is there an example you can give us, yeah, or is yeah. like, is there a yep. topic like we would approach that you wouldn't have to give a specific? Like, you don't have to be uh, specific in that regards. I, I didn't know if there was something that is a complete. Well, there's a category. Hey, that category is very. Um, let me rephrase everything. Is there a category that you guys won't touch or just because of the competitive nature of it, it's too much to spend. There's not, there's too much to play with. You can't get, can't really break outside the boxes. Is that maybe where you guys go to instead of like black hack tactics or anything like that? Like what we, we can separate that from this, this conversation. Is there like a category that you would rather like not touch? Um, first thing you gotta understand my Ryan is I am like super, <laughs> super honest and super frank, even if it shoots, I shoot myself in the foot. So, uh, there's no questions you can't ask me. I actually like the hard questions. I think that's what makes us special. We answer the hard questions. I do sure. one. Um, yeah, I mean, just going back to the black hat thing. So black hat tactics, we generally don't like, um, but everybody uses a different flavor of black hat tactics. I mean, uh, it's, it, you go go back five years, almost a lot of Amazon sellers were doing something that was be considered gray or black. Right. Um, the big, the really bad stuff is, you know, you're selling through 20 accounts um, and you're selling through 20 different accounts and you're swapping listings between each one. Um, one goes down and then you take the listings, you swap it to another account and then you, and then you just present us with one of the, one of the accounts that you never had any historical account health issues, but it's attached to, or related to all these other entities and other accounts that have had significant account health problems from account suspension to massive product suspensions. That's really hard to untangle for us. It's not a challenge that we're, I mean, it's, it's something that we've figured out is pretty hard to do. Um, and Amazon keeps getting smarter and smarter and smarter about how to relate those issues to, to related accounts. So that's like one of the big things that's really hard for us to overcome on the black hat side. Um, in terms of like general, general criteria, um, we're pretty agnostic. So, um, we'll look at almost anything. Um, you know, everything has a price. You know, some categories are better than others. Um, some products are, are better than others. 
Um, some marketplace mixes are better than others. Um, and so it really just depends. I know that's like the worst possible answer. Um, we've done deals in electronics. We've done deals in baby. We've done deals in sports. Um, the only area we haven't really done a lot of deals is apparel. Um, although, and the reason for that really is just um, apparel things, the fads change a lot in apparel and they change really quickly. And a really big part of us, of, of there being a win-win outcome for both the sellers and for us is the brands that we buy, we want them to be around for a really long time. Um, and that's, that's what we, that's how we build our entire operating strategy is how can we make long-term investments to make sure that the brands that we acquire continue to grow and grow and please customers for a decade plus because we believe in Amazon as a platform uh, for the next for multiple decades. And so that's that's kind of the frame of mind we're, we're operating in. And with apparel, it's, it's a bit more challenging for us because it's hard to know kind of like how long will people want to buy, um, you know, Lulu leggings or how long will people want to buy, you know, blue blouses. That's that's really challenging to us. Yeah, that was the question I asked yesterday uh, with Sam uh, over at, you know, Wholesome um, is. What, what's up? What's the projected shelf life of a product that you might be acquiring or a brand? Because uh, the data out there, you know, typically would suggest that if it's a fat, for example, like um, a fidget spinner or something that has just this credible uh, sales through velocity, it's more kitschy, but hey, for a year or so, it was, it was a strong seller. And that your due diligence is actually at that moment in time, you can look at historical history, but it's really in the forecasting for the future. Is this going to actually maintain, grow, and, and and still be viable in Amazon or just online in general? So that actually makes the question continuously, you know, profitable in terms of like if I'm a, a person in your position, how do you forecast either trend or viability of product for, like you said, hopefully decades? Uh, is there that mix that you have to be strong in, you know, hey, this is going to be consistent, like kitchen tools or uh, like you said, baby, baby uh, gifts or baby toys. What what are those categories that you feel like have that strength to continue to have longevity down the down the road? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I I will tell you, and I, you tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think that that's those are one of that's like there isn't a lot of great empirical data with a right. large sample set available to answer that question. And it is the most fundamental question in our ecosystem. Right? And it's like, it's almost, you could be like, you guys are crazy to do this without knowing the answer to that. Um, right. At like, and I would totally agree with you if you said that. Um, I've tried to, and I mean, a big part of our, our tech strategy um, is around building um, the data tools um, and the data lake and the data infrastructure um, in order to answer that question at some point in the future. Um, but like you said, like if you just take the raw ingredients, most Amazon FBA businesses were started in the last five years, most of them. The ones that were started before that, they're like hundred million, $200 million revenue plus businesses. And it, they've been launching products and um, losing products over the course of their history. So even if you ask one of them, they wouldn't be able to really tell you what's been the, what's been the, you know, you, they've been around for eight years, but the mix of listings inside of their cat, inside of their portfolio has changed significantly. And they don't have more than two years of data to, to work right. with either. Um, 
And and then so and then you focus and you go back to the point that most 80% really started in the last five years. I mean, how much history do you actually need to know that to 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 be able to answer the question of okay, this is the churn rate? I would argue um, it's probably closer to 10 to 15 years. Like you actually have to go through a full economic cycle in order to be able to answer the churn question with a high degree of confidence. Um, so the short answer is um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> hey, you're honest. Yeah, I, I don't know. And I think anybody who says they know, um, I would challenge that. Um, I try to approach it from different perspectives. Um, and and I, start, I, start, I try to talk to people who might have more data than me. In particular, the lending providers in the Amazon ecosystem. Um, they've actually been around longer than all the aggregators. They've been looking and collecting data on a lot of Amazon businesses for a lot longer than pretty much anybody else. Um, and you could probably say some of the some of the advertising uh, uh, platforms as well. You can probably talk to them and ask them the same question. Although I, I don't think they've been as focused on on that data point. It's like how many businesses fail every single year in your portfolio. They don't. They'll tell you the churn rate, but they won't actually know the the, the death rate, which is really what we care about. And if you ask the lenders, you'll get some interesting answers. Um, and lenders, you know, they care. The way that they make money is. Um, they borrow money from somebody else, right? Maybe it costs mm -hmm. them 15%. And then they take, and then they say, we want to earn a 7% spread on that, on that money. And, oh, but by the way, we have to factor in the likelihood that you go bankrupt, right? So basically your cost of capital, which is how much money the lender borrows from their investors, um, plus the profit spread minus their default rate is their, is how much money they make. So right. I bought number 15, I lend it out at plus seven, that's 22%. And then I have a 2% default rate. So I make 20%, right, on every single loan that, that I go out over the course of time. So it's really important for lenders to know what that default rate number is. And that's the first question I ask all lenders, like what's your default rate? Because that will tell me what the failure rate is of an Amazon average Amazon business. And when you ask them that, they'll give you the number. Um, I don't want to say it now, but it's higher than most banks and um, and not as high as you would think, I would also say. But then the follow-up question I always ask is, okay, like what are the businesses that are actually failing? Um, and the answer I've gone a couple times is you want to buy stuff that's on the first page. If it's not on the first page, um, the failure rates start to accelerate pretty significantly. And so first page is 44 spots. Right. Um, organic and sponsored. Um, right. So give or take, yeah. Give or take, right. So if you're 40 in the subcategory, I consider that like a pretty durable listing. Um, now, obviously, there's a ton of nuance to this, right? Like if you have 30 competitors that have 10,000 reviews and you're the, the bottom 10 and you have 1,000, that's very different than if everybody had 5,000 reviews in the top 40 subcategory, right? Exactly. So more nuanced, but that's generally speaking how I've been thinking about it. Interesting. Well, I like that concept too, because so I, I, I've been having conversations with people like you, like who are running the, these businesses for the past, probably since September and everything has completely changed. Like the amount of money is raised. It's incredible. Like the amount of money that's coming in and a lot of people continue to say, you know, they're hedging bets, right? It's, it's businesses either will be successful, whether they offshoot and they are become niche focused and only work on specific products or categories they are all encompassing whether they take the most profitable, 
you know, businesses out there, they built those out so that they have the most longevity possible as well. Um, or they're acquiring just data in terms of customer information. So then you can start uh, pushing out those businesses, um, the operations component aspect of it, or just really building out something so that they can curate their own brands. You already have your own brands that you're facilitating, still operating. I'm assuming that you've kept somewhat separate under maybe D1 brands. I'm not sure how that, I won't ask you how that, all that uh, uh, encompasses, but it, as that continues to play out, is your projection to either buy up and hedge those bets or is it to inevitably just have those logistic chains and so that you can start playing with capital to grow your own brands or is it more of building and acquiring customer data so that you can make the right decisions moving forward. Because like you said, these products may not last 10 years. Uh, they might have a shelf life or you have to get rid of them in, entirely. Um, they just don't have the sales through that you and your team projected. What, what's kind of that, like the money that you're betting on essentially day to day? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, so it's, it's a bit of, it's a it's a it's a bit of all all of those things. Um, I would say, but it, it just depends on how you want to sequence it. Um, I actually think that the end state for a lot of aggregators is the same. Um, it, so it just depends on what you want to do first, what you want to do second, what you want to do third. Um, what we want to do first is buy fantastic brands um, that'll be around for a really long time. Because if you do that, you'll have the profits to invest in a bunch of different things as the ecosystem evolves. And whether that means you should prioritize product development, whether you should prioritize insourcing in your logistics infrastructure because it gives you an edge in doing oversized fulfillment where nobody else is competing, right? Like there, there's like there's strategic offshoots of every single one of those decisions you make that play into what do you want to do, and that and the, and the value of those things changes year to year, um, and like and so it's not a it's not that's that's not a great answer, but that's very simplistically how, how we're thinking about it. Um, I think, I think the cost cost capturing customer data component is a really interesting angle to product development. And it really feeds the product development cycle on Amazon, but it, but unless like, so capturing customer data, but use, you have to use Shopify to do that. Um, that can be helpful in, on, in your, on your Amazon marketplace. And then it's obviously also helpful if you want to take your product from Amazon and take it DDC. Take your product from Amazon and DDC, that's not a near-term priority for us. Um, it's something that's probably a year or two out for us. Um, but we are that, and but that doesn't mean that we don't set up Shopify sites, start doing email distribution, start doing, uh, start uh, creating content and targeting customers and retargeting them, and then using them to tell us what the next product that we should launch in that brand is um that's really valuable that's something we've already started to work on um and is in the game plan for, for the next for the next six to 12 months um but the thing is like there are also a lot of like public there's a lot of alternatives to doing that too right like you just use pick food right like take your product put on pick food crowdsource some feedback and then figure out how you want to iterate on your product or on your brand um and so there's some utility in that but not a lot of utility in that the other like fundamental belief of ours is that there actually isn't a lot of value um, to being in one category unless you're going to be off Amazon. So like, there's not a lot of value in owning pacifier clips, pacifiers, you know, baby cribs, um, baby bottles, all in one category on Amazon unless you can take it off Amazon. 
there's a lot right. more potential off Amazon than there is on Amazon. And on Amazon, what really matters are is, I mean, your brand is important on Amazon. I mean, some brands have higher branded keyword searches than others. That's how you can really tell brand value in our opinion. Um, and that, and that's, that's varies from 5% of keyword volume to 20% of keyword volume. That's pretty significant. But the, but the real value of having a cohesive portfolio in one category is off Amazon because then you can sell the same customers over and over again. Um, and you can't really do that with information you get from Amazon, as you, as you know. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I was going to say that, that sounds like to me, that's, that can either go one of two ways or maybe both ways of how you describe that. That can go down, like you said, direct to consumer, or that can even go into wholesale play to retail stores and whatnot. So I feel like that there's multiple different paths you can journey down. There's no wrong way. I would say that there's lots of options for acquiring brands that are doing being successful on Amazon. And then obviously, um, you know, pushing them and kicking that down the road to see what other paths you can take as well on top of Amazon, of course, you know, is, is that like, what, what's the nightmare uh, scenario that you play in your head as you wake up in the morning or go to bed at night? Yes. Is it, is it is there something that like the volatility of like Amazon and how much control they have over every single brand, or is there another thing that you are kind of fearful of, like worst case scenario besides lock, getting yourself locked out of your office? I mean that that's key. Like, <laughs> we've, we've already we've already gone through that today, so you know worst case scenario that's gone through. Yeah. What is that for someone in your role on a day to day basis? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I'm really afraid. So the things I, I worry about um, are obviously, you know, Amazon changes the rules of the game on aggregators um, uh, because one or two of them get really big and Amazon gets scared. They're they're have, they have too much negotiating power. That would obviously meaningfully change the business model. Um, I get... Well, what would they do? Like, what, what would that be? Like, Amazon just says aggregators can't exist anymore. Like, how does that work if... How does that become separate if uh, like I'm your own brand and I just want to start launching products? Is, is that everything becomes one B or everything switches to that model and they have to sell directly to Amazon? Is that how that changes? Um, it's, it's I'm trying to think like how, how would Amazon like how would Amazon be actively affecting that? Like in my yeah. I'm trying yeah, to walk through how that looks like. Yeah, no, that's a great that's a great point. That's a great question. Um so I mean, I think that I, I I agree. Like, I actually think it's not a very rational fear if you think if you think through it a bit more. But like, if one of the top guys at Amazon like is like, so let me let me I'll I'll, I'll, I'll let me tell you why I think it's a fear, and then we can go into like how they sure. actually enforce it. So why I think it's a fear is, you know, right now the top aggregator is like one person. I don't know, like probably less than a percent, maybe a percent of Amazon's total GMB. Um, which it really isn't a big problem. Like the way I think about a lot of Amazon sellers and aggregators, we're basically like franchisors to Amazon, sorry, franchisees to Amazon and we're, and they're the franchisor. If you look at a lot of other franchise systems like McDonald's or Burger King or, or Wendy's, you know, most of their franchisees don't make up more than, uh, one individual franchisee doesn't make up more than 5% of sales. In some cases, it's been closer to 30 or 40%. And that's, that's where you see the franchisor push back hard um, by either buying their brands from them or buying back their units or systematically trying to, um, you know, essentially make them break up and sell to other people. Um, so I think that that might be what happens here is, you know, a few guys get a little too big. Amazon gets worried. 
um, and they encourage you uh, to break up your business um, or they systematically target you. Um, I think it's unlikely that they systematically target you because it's very hard on Amazon to punish one person without punishing the other people on the marketplace. And so I think that's how it would manifest itself. I actually don't think it would it would really affect other Amazon sellers. It would probably really focus on people who are, are aggregating. Um, now that would have a knock-on effect on Amazon sellers looking to exit because if the entire industry was taken down or a couple of big players were taken down, that might spook investors. It might mean that less capital comes into the space and that may mean that there are less exit options for sellers. Um, so that's that's how it would impact the ev- the everyday average Amazon seller. Do I think that's a likely outcome? I don't think so. I mean, if you look at so Amazon just, as we all know, they just like punitively punished a lot of the a lot of really big Chinese sellers that have been, um, you know, they haven't been following uh, TOS for a long time. Right. Um, a couple of those sellers were, you know, one percent, two percent of GMB. I mean, I think in aggregate they were one or two percent of GMB, or, or one of them was one percent of GMB. So that's like five to six billion of revenue. Um, like it's, I don't think there's an aggregator that big yet. Um, and so like we're really far away from that, and that didn't really bother them. So I was going to say, yeah, because of when you say they get too big, I'm trying to think of. Uh, there's so many different names that get thrown around the space, right? In money. And, and you're, I'm sure, 100% aware of all of those numbers. And it's, it's super fascinating to see how fast the growth is happening. But it's also fascinating to see at, like, at the rate in which they're closing deals. So I think yeah. the number one in the space would be, in terms of money raised, it, it would be by far and away probably Thrasio. Um, oh, sure. And I think when I when I saw information, um, you know, either Prosper, just like through pictures, it was one of 10 products delivered on Amazon as a Thrasio product, which seems like temper, like I would call it 10%. Um, they're acquiring a business one every, I, I believe the stat was like one every seven days. Um, so if you're looking at, you know, 52 brands, theoretically, um, in a year, uh, that doesn't seem like too terribly a lot. Like if, I, if I'm walking through numbers, like the amount of product, yes. But if you're looking at brands in general, that doesn't seem like, the overarching amount of, uh, you know, fear of businesses being bought up and only ran by brands on Amazon being only ran by like what, 25 different companies, potentially that wouldn't be my thing. I think the number that would, that scared me, not scared me really stood out was the one in 10, which is kind of crazy. I think that's a stat. And again, if you're listening to this and you saw that at prosper show, let me know if I have that wrong, but I believe that was the stat, uh, that they were, uh, you know, that they're emphasizing, which is really fascinating to consider that uh, in terms of like market volume, in terms of how many products are going yeah. through FBA. So um, I think that's, that's super fascinating as well. That's a really interesting data point. Um, and I, I want to dig into that a bit more. I, I did not see that data point. I have heard of the, you know, they're buying one a week, um, which is really impressive. Like those guys, I mean, honestly, hats off to them. They're really good operators um, and they have a great brand. And I think they've done great things for the entire industry. Um, but one to 10 does seem a little high. I'm not going to lie. Um, so I'll have to dig into that a bit. Thrasio, I know I had, I know I had Casey Goss, who is my former uh, CEO at one point, And then I know he's VP. Casey, if you're watching this or listening to this, you need yeah. to let me know if that stat, what that stat is, because that's a crazy stat. I don't need to go and look. And if any other friends in the space uh, 
happened onto that. Is that a statistic that was being touted? If you have a picture, I would love to see that. But in, in that in that case, I would think like, yes, of course, that seems like a lot uh, being ran through one major corporation. And you've seen them make plays at other things. Uh, is that a business you kind of look up to or is it more like heads, you would rather be more heads down, do our own thing and not worry about other people in the space and what they're uh, uh, kind of achieving or um, the news that's kind of going on there? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a market. And I think if you talk to this, people at Barassio, I think uh, Carlos has even said this, um, but you know, I fundamentally believe that this is a market big enough for a lot of people to a lot of different uh, buyers to, to win and to thrive in. Um, and that's why there are so many, that's why there are so many aggregators. And that's why a lot of them have been successful thus far, because uh, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of market potential here. Um, and because of that, I don't focus as much on, you know, them as I do on us and our own path and our own journey. Um, and you'd be surprised, like the market. So, I mean, you probably find this hard to believe, but we actually don't run into them a lot. Um, I know that's kind of crazy, but it, it just goes to show you about negotiating for a brand. Yeah, exactly. Okay. When we're, when we're both, you know, we, we don't really actually bake off with them a lot on, 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 on brands. Um, yeah, you don't always know who's on the other side of the table, but, um, sometimes you figure it out. And in most cases, it's not them. Um, and I think that's just because they, again, it's a market's just massive. Um, and they're also maybe more focused on some bigger stuff, but they also do a lot of small stuff too. So they're kind of all over the place. Um, right. But yeah. Is there, then, is there a, a, go ahead, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. But, but for us, I mean, we, we really try to focus on what and what makes us different and what makes us special. And for us, it's been, it's been, a, it's a little bit different than the, the Thrasio model. Uh, and, and um, I don't want to speak for them, but, um, but I guess our model and how we think we're a little bit different is we, we feel really strongly that the most important thing is making sure that sellers have a fantastic selling experience, which means that um, we give them a fair price. We treat them with, we treat, we give them a great price. We treat them, we have high professionalism um, and there's a very high degree of trust. But the most important thing, most important thing about trust is that they actually feel, they feel the trust, right? And the way that we get there and there's, and the, the selling process is really scary. It's really complicated. There's a million questions. You never know if you want to eat. Sometimes some sellers get, you know, they feel bad asking too many questions. They don't want to seem like they don't know what they're doing. Um, and so, the way we've been able to solve that, and by the way, a lot of, sometimes they're not even using brokers, which we encourage because, and we can get into that conversation. Um, and the way that we solve for that anxiety is by just trying to build a lot of trust. And we do that by having our, our team spend a lot of time with sellers. Um, and so we're very, very high touch. We don't characterize ourselves as a machine. We're happy to go a little bit slower to make sure that the process, the selling process is exceptional. It's the best that they've ever had. Um, end to end. It's the fastest, it's the smoothest, it's the most transparent, it's the most trustworthy. And every single one of our deals we put under LOI is closed. We've closed on. And that's another thing we have a lot of pride in. We we 100% close rate. That's amazing. 100% close rate. And that's 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 the brand that we really are trying to build and that we have built thus far. And so we're okay to sacrifice a little bit of growth. We don't need to grow the fastest. What we want to do is make sure what we say is what we do. Um, and so we do a lot more work up front. We take we might take an extra week to give you to give you to give you an offer, and if the process is moving too fast, then we're going to be too slow for it. 
But we want to make sure when we give you an offer, you can go to your family, you can go to your wife, you can go to your kids, you can go to your husband, and you, you can share the success and it happens and it's going to happen. Um, and that's, and so we invest a lot in making sure we bring the best people We make invest a lot in making sure that every, we're setting up meetings in a good time. We're setting up, you know, we're making the, the process frictionless that we have senior people on the calls. When you talk to us so that you're talking to me, you're talking to our head of M&A every single time, not just some junior M&A analyst. Um, and that we, and we do all of the work. I like that. Well, and, and this, this is the thing too, I, I noticed from 10,000 V is, Everything's being promoted as it's a quick close process. It's fast. It's quick. Like you, you put your name on paper, you submit it and all of a sudden your process has begun. And I feel like that's an anxiety inducing experience because as a seller's perspective, and maybe I'm speaking not for everyone, but I would think that to go and rush through everything without due diligence, that's where mistakes are made, whether it's for a brand that is acquiring or that they look at something, they don't put the numbers together correctly and they could either get more money out of uh, a potential buyout or um, there's a better deal to be had based upon terms and, and achievements that is negotiated at the table. So that's why I think it's, it's very fascinating to understand like the rate at which the speed is being marketed instead of the, um, instead of the due diligence and like the ability to like, this is what we're getting out of it. This is what you get out of it. Let's educate through this process. Is there like that gap in the market of why it, it seems like a very rushed process or is that just because businesses have to be purchased because of equity they're taking on? So there's benchmarks that need to be made. What, what's, what's kind of that philosophy yeah. do you think? No, that's, that's a fantastic question. Um, I mean, I definitely think that to answer the latter, the last question, there's definitely a race to scale. Um, and you're, there's a ton of capital that wants to be deployed in this ecosystem. And so there's a lot of pressure to do deals. Um, but eventually we think that's going to work against you. And so we've taken the opposite approach on the, on the due diligence piece. Absolutely. So now I just want to be very clear, just some facts. We, our average close time is 29 days. Um, Which seems fast to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, we're, we're really proud of that. And we work every single day. We were trying to get it down to 21. That's our kind of, that's our goal. That's our benchmark. Um, and, and we do, and we have a very thorough due diligence process um, where people get into, I think where people run into trouble isn't how fast we can do it. And it's not the fact that they're not, they don't have all the boxes to check. I think most, I think some aggregators, at least most of the good ones, like they have all their, they know what information to collect. They have a process for it. And a lot of them can probably close within 30 or 40 days. The issue is when you try to do too many deals at once and you don't appropriately resource it. And then that's when things just start to break down completely. Um, you just end up doing everything just mediocre instead of, instead of a few deals really, really well. Um, and so, and that's, that's the approach we take. It's like, we'll just do a few deals really well instead of doing a lot of deals mediocrely and have a really crappy due diligence process where you're not checking all the boxes. And then you get to the end of the process. And then all of a sudden, one of the head decision makers is like, you guys didn't do half of diligence. We're buying this business. We don't really understand it. Um, maybe sales are down a little bit and that spooks them. And since they didn't have a complete process, they're like, ah, forget it. We just won't do that. We have another 20 in the pipeline anyway. It doesn't really matter. And that's, if, I, don't, I don't know if you've noticed this, but recently we've also noticed this is like, we have a lot of people where we moved a little bit slow because we want to do a lot of work up front. 
um, and they ended, or you know, or we moved, we moved just as fast as the other guys. We just came in a little bit below on the offer, um, and they went with somebody else. And then two months later, they come back and they say, um, you know, we'd love to revisit a conversation. Uh, the process we just went through fell through. Um, and this has been the prevalence of that has grown significantly in the last few months. I don't have a lot of data on it because I'm not. I'm, I think brokers are probably the best person to ask this, but right. Are they coming? Are they, well, that, that's a fascinating point too, because I think uh, from what I've heard, uh, just behind like closed doors, like there's there's a lot of people that overpromise and deliver, under deliver in that regards, or there's something that crops up and you know it's not being transparent along the processes. Is it is it more of that, or people sharing you with you that information, or well, what's kind of that? If you had a guess, what, what what's that reasoning? Yeah. Um, so I think um, I think. I think more recently what's happened is uh, like, I think some people got, some people had a, some aggregators got a little bit aggressive on pricing to win deals. And then if you have, you know, diligence is a 30 day process, right? And it, and then I think in the last few months, we've, everybody's kind of seen a slight slowdown in organic mm -hmm. traffic after post pandemic. And so you have these aggregators that came in really strong in like January, February with offers. And then by March and April, numbers are down like five, 10% month over month. And they were spooked, right? And, and they pulled out. Um, and then I think there's another bucket, which is um, they did really sloppy uh, diligence up front. And like diligence is just about figuring out what the right price for a business is. That's all it is. It's not, a, it's, it's rarely, um, I won't do a deal or I'll definitely do a deal. It's usually right. like, okay, let me collect all the information and then take it to develop an offer that is fair, right? But right. you don't have all the information and you only collect the good information, you don't collect any of the bad information, your offer might be well above fair, which is, which is also fine. Um, but if you go into diligence and then you pick up some of those nuggets uh, that you didn't pick up up front when you made the offer, the bad stuff, like for example, um, the seller was wasn't paying their their, their full customs bills. They were reporting, um, they were underreporting their their products uh, to customs, and then their customs bills end up. So there's a lot of back taxes they have to pay to customs. Um, that's a that's a liability tale uh, that wasn't factored in upfront because you didn't ask the right questions. And so right. now in diligence, um, you have this hundred thousand dollar, fifty thousand dollar liability. Um, you don't know how to deal with it, um, and Maybe you go back to the seller, try to recut the deal. They're not happy. They walk away. Um, or maybe you just try to blindside them because you found a bunch of other stuff too. And you're just like, ah, screw it. We're just going to walk away. Right. And so like, those are kind of the two scenarios that I typically see. Um, mm -hmm. And then the third actually is also, we just don't have, we don't have the money. Right. That, is, that happens too. It's like, they thought they were going to raise the money. They didn't raise the money. And that's, that's more the case for newer aggregators. Right. So it's really important to ask questions and validate and try to do reference checks on aggregators. So what, what about, so when you, when you say that, like I hear a bunch of go, good data points too, um, a lot of those key components like that, if he, it's all the same data that everyone's collecting, right? If you're shopping, uh, quote unquote, shopping your brand, you're going to it, it's all the same data in theory that you're going to be sharing with it. But the algorithm kind of changes as like this formula that I'm sure you and your team have. Once you put in these things, the negatives are going to be things that take away from that offer being so high. It almost seems like the more in depth that your algorithm gets or your 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 sheet that you're basing these offers off of it, it has to be 
a ton of data points, right? It, it, it can't be more than like, it, it can't just be like 10. Like what's your sales month or year over year? What's your revenue? What's your profits? What's your net margin? Uh, net margins, your cost of goods, all these different things. It has to be more than that, right? Like you said, like, what are your taxes? Like uh, your books, are they clean or not? Are they, uh, have you paid your VAT online or uh, upfront or GST or how many marketplaces? are you selling through uh, what's that growth factor? Like there has to be all these different data points and you as a numbers person, how long is like this data sheet? It has to be, you know, super intuitive, right? In order to make this investment, like millions of dollars of investment. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great question. So um, there are the quantitative stuff and then there's a the qualitative stuff. Um, and the quantitative stuff is, it's a pretty long, it's a pretty long list of, of items. I would say there's probably like 30 or 40 data points, uh, quantitative data points. A lot of that we extract straight from Seller Central. Um, so part of our diligence process is to hook up Seller Central before we make an offer. And we get BMWS basically. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's how, and we fill in. So we, it doesn't take a lot of work on the part of the seller, but that's how we get all of our information. I mean, the things we're looking at, um, are a lot of the things you just said. Um, and then some more nuanced things like branded keyword searches, you know, re return rate, average ASP, um, you know, obviously conversion rates over time by month, by week, seasonality, Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4. Um, is it standard seasonality or non standard seasonality? Um, you know, are they trademark? Are they brand registered? Is it BR1, 1.0, 1.2? Is it A plus EBC? Uh, do they have A plus EBC? You know, what are the listing images? Is it 4K? Is eight images? Are lifestyle images? Are not lifestyle images? I mean, there's a lot. There's, there's a lot of those things that we look at, and there's just like it's like a 50 point checklist that's very quantitative. Um, and then there's I feel like the, I just drink from a hose right there with all the data you just threw at me. Oh my well, I mean, God. I can keep that going, honestly. I can, I can keep, I can keep running through it, but I think uh, I might lose some people on this call. Um, Sorry, we lost our, we lost our listener. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, well, that's a lot. Well, like this, this is the expectation, right? Like as a business, like this is a nuanced way of new doing business, right? As like, this is not, this is not new. This is not different. This is not uh, some revolutionary business model. This yes. is like real life, but it's actually transitioned to just Amazon or just online assets, right? Or it, it could be assets that are strictly ran online. This is just taking retail out of it um, or like uh, physical assets besides uh, your goods, right? This is not labor. Uh, your labor is all in-house theoretically. Um, all, all this stuff is all in-house, but it the model is still very much the same. And a lot of people just think it's a new way no way to do business. It's not. And, and that's why probably people like yourself who, who can raise this capital, it's like, we understand it. We know what to look for. It's not rocket science. It's how you operate efficiently and how you become more effective in that regards. And not everyone has that touch. Like this brand may not have that touch. You guys can. So therefore you just take it over. You instantly become more profitable. It'd be like uh, before Coca-Cola got big and Pepsi's like, well, I know like marketing, you know, wise you have all these assets, we can do it better. And they take over this asset that they know is good and they just, you know, take it on and grow to a behemoth. So exactly. I don't know if that, I don't know if it's very something along those contexts, but you're just doing a little bit, a little bit less of a scale. So uh, is there a brand that's too big to acquire in this day and age? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think like, I don't even know what the top, like of the top 100 or top a thousand, how many people have exited. I don't, I don't have that stat, that stat point in front of me, but 
yeah, I was going to say, it, it, can someone be too big for them to be acquired? Um, I think that just, just thinking about um, being very honest. So like the key constraint for most buyers is going to be their capital providers, their investors. Um, if you look at a lot of the capital that's come, that's invested into aggregators, like giving them money to buy businesses, um, most of them have like some stipulation as to the size of the business of a business you can buy at once. Um, now, but that can vary very much from from buyer to buyer, from aggregator to aggregator, I should say. On, so I you think like like here's a pot of a hundred thousand dollars. We need like once you you can tap into that if you need it, but otherwise it's you know, they flesh out so much ahead of time and then you can tap into it ongoing. Is that, is that how that works? It's usually like, yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Here's a, here's a hundred million bucks. And anytime you have an acquisition, you can draw a certain amount from it and use it to finance the acquisition. Um, but there's a limit to how much you can do at once. Um, I think that generally that limit is probably like 25 to 50% of the total you've raised um, some people can probably get away with just doing, you know, the whole thing if they wanted to. Uh, but if you rate a billion dollars, I'd probably say 250 million to half a billion is probably the, the limit. Um, and then, but the, there's also, but it's also obviously a lot more nuanced than that, but I would say that's probably the right way to think about it. And in practicality, there really aren't that many businesses that big on Amazon. And so I don't think a lot of people are going to even run into that problem. I think okay. the top, look at the top 100 sellers on Amazon. Um, Utopia is like, I mean, Utopia is number four, number three. I'm not sure what they do in sales, but it's, I think it's like probably, I don't know, close to a billion. Um, and the bottom, the bottom rung, you can get this information on Marketplace Pulse, by the way. You can just mm -hmm. do it. Um, uh, the bottom, the number 100th top seller on Amazon, I think, is doing on average 100 million dollars revenue. So, like, it's not it's not going to be a problem, really, um, because generally speaking, by the way, just for everyone's context, if you do like if you're doing like 100 million dollars in sales, uh, the the average multiple we've seen now that can change. It's very nuanced here, but this is in general, if you're doing 100 million dollars in sales, you're probably getting acquired for like. Between 70 million and 150 million. It could be a lot higher than that for sure, depending on your business and the brands you're in it. That's generally speaking the range. And so, like, unless you're a top 100 seller, you're probably not going to run into this issue with anybody not being able to acquire you. There's enough capital in the space uh, where an aggregator can acquire you. You know, we raised $120 million. Um, I think our deal size, like the max right now, is probably 25 million. Um, that's going to change, you know, in the near future. But for now, that's pretty much our cap. I'm going to hold you to that. No, I, mean, I, I, I expect, I expect big things because, you know, everyone's, you know, they're constantly quote unquote raising money and capital. And even this past week, we saw it with, uh, elevate brands. We saw it with foundry that raised a hundred million dollar. Um, and, and I have great like people that and connections over at those brands. And it's actually fascinating. The one that actually did stand out to me was, and I'll, I'm curious on your take was the, the aggregator aggregating the space. Right. And I think that was perch who acquired for, hundred to two hundred million dollars brands that were under this one uh, umbrella and I think the the seller had like 20 brands again I'm making the stats up as I remember uh, but I, I forget if it was like MSS or there, there's an acronym of what they're doing but they have warehousing the along with all this acquisition 
that to me seems like where this can potentially go into the next six months, if not year of yeah. brands like yourselves, like either saying, Hey, you have a book of business of like 20 brands that, that sounds, that looks good to us. Hey, let's all fold into one, you know, business. Is that, is that something you're either excited about or are you afraid of? I think it's either be in, I agree. Um, in the next like one to two years. And, um, we want to be one of the people that, eat, not get eaten, obviously. Um, I think it's a race to scale to do that, but we want to do it in an intelligent and sustainable way. We're not going to grow just because we don't want to get eaten. Um, we're going to grow the right way. We're going to stick to our brand. Um, we're going to do it in a sustainable fashion. And if we ended up get, getting eaten because of that, that's okay with us. Um, and if we become the people consuming others, um, we're okay with that too. Um, I think either outcome is good for our employees um, and it's it's good for our brand owners um, and it's good for all the sellers that have sold to us. Either outcome. Last question you asked before we let you go. Where did you come up? Where, what does D1 brand stand for? Like D1, I think division one, like a sports acronym. No. Uh, well, what's D1? Yeah, actually. Uh, so, bef but when I was, uh, before I started this business, what I did was I read all of Jeff Bezos's 20 annual letters from 96 or 14 annual letters from 96. Um, and, um, and he ends all of his letters with the same thing, which is it's always day one. Um, gotcha. Day one brands. Got day it. One brands. And I was, you know, I really resonated with that. I thought that was a fantastic ethos um, and a culture that has been able to, it's allowed Amazon to just constantly innovate over the last 20 years. Um, and I wanted to embody that. Uh, in our company, um, particularly because we are building a business on Amazon. Um, and so why not be culturally aligned with, with Amazon? And that's why we named it D1 brand. And actually our logo is like a calendar It's the first day of the month. So I love that. That's really cool. You're almost like FedEx where you have the arrow pointing forward and moving forward. I, I like the nuances yeah. of that. Yeah. There you go. Well, that's really cool. So obviously the next step is obviously, uh, in space. So I'm assuming there's a rocket ship being built. Um, yeah. maybe right behind you. I don't know. Yeah. That, that's to be determined <laughs> secret under wraps. No, but yeah. Hey, yes, that that's fantastic. And obviously, uh, if you're listening to this, it's going to be in the show notes, but you can check out more about D one brands. If you have a conversation you're looking to, uh, either brand to have those conversations to be acquired, but, um, what's that next six months you ask for you guys and your team? Is it, is it growth is focus on, you know, Q3, Q4 and making that first calendar year, you know, turn, if you will, uh, profitable as, as much as you can, or what, what is that factor for you guys? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we're, we're, we want to, we're accelerating the pace of our acquisitions. Um, so we want to do another 20 deals before the end of the year. Um, so if you're interested in selling your business, please reach out. Um, you know, we, we just, we essentially have a fresh round of capital um, and we have, you know, a lot of money to deploy. Um, and we're really excited to, we've beefed up our team as well to maintain that quality of service and quality of experience. Um, and we're really excited about the rest of the year. And in terms of operationally, yeah, absolutely. Like we're really focused on making sure that we get through these supply chain issues that everyone's feeling. And we're really being creative around how we can do that. Um, and we're also really excited about our product development opportunities. I think that's something that not a lot of people talk about, but you know, we started off as sellers building products and we keep doing that. We haven't changed doing that. We do that for all the brands we acquired too. Um, and that's been, that's what's really allowed us to drive incredible performance and in the brands that we've acquired. Because if anybody's a seller who's listening to this, 
if any, if you all know this better than I do, the best way to grow revenue is by launching products. And I will tell you uh, that you're probably not going to hear that a lot of other buyers are going to invest more capital into new products after they acquire your brand. But we feel that that's the highest ROI and best way to grow. And we're really good at it because we've been doing it since 2013. That's a big part of our growth strategy. So we have a big slate of product development launches we're super excited about. We're, going, we're working through the supply chain uh, complexities and um, we, have a, we have a big goal of uh, acquisitions that we want to meet for the rest of the year. And a fresh round of capital and new and new heads that do want to do it. Man, there, there's so much that I, I have to have news alerts out for all y'all brands because it, it's 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 constantly just ebbing and flowing, which is good and exciting because I know you guys have so many great things that you want to do as a brand, and that that's what makes me excited to be in the space is just the innovation that will come from this, whether it's you know tools to help sellers grow or just like the opportunity for other businesses to either exit some sort of business model that you know, online has provided, which is really cool. So I'm excited to see all these kinds of innovations happening um, and get announced. And congratulations again on the capital. And uh, the, we'll have to keep our ear out for the news that's coming down the pipeline here, hopefully shortly, that'll be announced. Yeah. But yes, thank you so much again for hopping on from D1 Brands. Uh, we'll, you can connect with you what, on LinkedIn or is there any other places that they yeah, should reach out to you directly? LinkedIn, we have an Instagram. Um, best way to reach us though is through our website, um, there's a, there's an info grabber, uh, you can put in your name, um, uh, your, and a quick, your email and a quick description, and we'll reach out to you immediately and we'll have a conversation. And you'll probably be talking to me or our head of M&A, um, because we always have senior people, um, talking, talking to, talking to sellers. So thank you so Love much, man. Really Thanks so much for the time. Make sure we bring our keys everywhere we're going for the rest of the day. Yes, and we won't want to worry about that the rest of the time. But hey, thanks awesome. so much for hopping across Evercommerce. We appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Have a good one, man. Awesome. Thanks, Yaz. Awesome. And thank you again, Yaz from D1 Brands. Uh, he had to, he just bolted real quick because I know he has different meetings uh, he has to go to. But everyone, thank you so much for, again, hopping on another episode of Crossover Commerce. This is presented by Ping Pong Payments. And of course, if this is your first episode or if you're, it's your 133rd, what have you been doing? You got to be joining more episodes of Crossover Commerce. That starts with subscribing to our channels on social media, but also on all the audio formats that we produce as well. And that's going to be on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, even Google Podcasts. No matter where you download those uh, podcasts that you listen to on a daily basis, make Crossover Commerce one of those as well. But I'm the host that goes live constantly as much as I can with the great leaders in the Amazon and e-commerce space, just like yes, and D1 brands. Like I said, yesterday we had Sam from uh, Olsen Brands and you know they had great stuff to talk about, but obviously you can see the different nuances and the different uh, sides of businesses in terms of the acquisition space um, and where people come from, what's important to them, what's not. Um, it's super fascinating for me as a host um, and as a person who works in the e-commerce space, but let us know what you think. Uh, if there's a brand out or aggregator that's doing really cool and competitive things um, that's not getting a lot of attention, let me know. Go ahead and drop me a note. Uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, or even Instagram, or just you can email us directly as well. But that being said, this has been another episode of Crossover Commerce. Thanks for again tuning in, everyone, um, when we go live or if you're downloading this on all of our uh, podcast platforms as well. Thank you so much for listening to us and let us know what you think by sharing this episode and giving us a nice little rating as well. Uh, give us your honest feedback. We always want to get better and better with each new and exciting episode. That being said, we'll catch you guys next time on Friday. 
as we talked with payability, uh, talked about a little bit about the financing side and investment uh, side of things. We'll talk with payability and Jacob Schwartz over there as well. I'm Ryan Kramer. Thanks, guys, for tuning in to another episode of Crossover Matters. Take care.